Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Live from the Stamp Show Here Today infotainment complex, this is the award-winning Stamp Show Here Today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. You can support this witless tosh by joining the Stamp Show Here Today community. The cost is only $10 for a lifetime membership. We are an APS-affiliated club. Listen to the end credits for information on joining. This is Cash. And this is product philosopher Mark. Uh-oh. Still using a title. Yep. This is Albert. And, uh, well, we'll start off by revisiting a topic from a little while ago. Tet Besh, or Titi as my son called it. There is another U.S. issue, other than Hawaii, that comes in Tet Besh. And it was pointed out by Joseph W., thank you for pointing it out. It is on the press sheets of the Earthscape stamps. And they are Tet Besh to each other. Wow, I did not know that. So there's I a, there's think a, there's a local stamp that has Tet Besh. Yeah, but I think this is going to be the only actual U.S. regular issue postage stamp that comes Tet Besh from the United States. I cannot think of another stamp that's Tet Besh. So head and foot, which is what it literally means. Yes. And uh, just so you don't have to go back and listen, it was originally a term that was used for beds. Anyway, we today are going to talk about the 1950 Mauritius U number 27, which is the first issue ever issued. There was none before it. The very first issue to ever show a dodo bird. That's the extinct one, right? That's the extinct one. That's the one the whalers ate. And uh, also, uh, people who collect errors on stamps will also collect this stamp because it erroneously says that the island is at 20-degree latitude instead of 21-degree latitude, which if you are navigating a ship in the 1950s and you're using this postage stamp to navigate through the Indian Ocean, you probably ran aground or, oh. or missed the island entirely. I would say missed the island entirely. But, you know, think of all the havoc that was caused by people navigating using this postage stamp. I mean, imagine if you were flying an airplane today and the, the pilot said, oh, my God, all our electronics are gone. Hand me that postage stamp. We'll find the airport. The pithiest thing I can say about that is only a dodo would use a stamp on a chart. <laughs> so, Mark, what crossed your desk? Well, I had a, uh, an order that had a couple of 461s, um, which is the Perf 11 um, flat plate single line watermarked uh, stamp. It is a uh, it is a very often um, faked stamp because um, 409, which is the imperforate, um, uh, is uh, is very inexpensive. 461 is very expensive, and uh, you can fake it from from a 409 just by perforating all all the you know all the edges around. But the uh, 461, in addition to being perf 11, it also has a very distinctive color, uh, pale carmine red. 
And um, so you can uh, you can almost immediately tell whether or not you have one just based on the color if you've seen if you've seen a lot of them. It is so it is truly one of the rarest stamps to find used since it came out in 1915 and was an experimental perf 11 stamp. Mm-hmm. I've I've had I've had maybe four or five pieces and they were mostly. Um, they were multiples or things that were used on piece and actually used in period, but other than that, there, there, there's more of them. There's more 461s used with non-contemporary cancels than there are genuinely used. But it's a, uh, it's a scarce one. So yeah, but you got to be careful when mm-hmm. somebody's selling you a 461. It's got to be the right shade, and it's got to be perf 11, and the perf's got to be real. Um, the other thing is uh, 464, which is a which is a perf 10. Um, and all those, uh, uh, all those perf dens are, are a single line watermark are notorious because the paper is thicker. And so it's harder to see the, the single line watermark sometimes. Um, but the 464 is doubly, uh, is doubly precarious because it can be faked easily from two different stamps, either 483, which is the imperforate, which you just perforate all the way around, or you can fake it from a 489, where you just perforate the, the left and right. It's um, a coil stamp. Yeah, 489 is a coil. So you would have genuine perfs top and bottom, but fake perfs left and right. Um, but the thing about 464, again, is they're, they're all kind of the same shade. They're all like a, a, a nice, rich violet or a deep violet. So if you've got a stamp that's a, supposedly a 464 and it's a light violet or it's kind of pale, um, you almost certainly have a fake. Go back to the first one, 461. What's another stamp that is that color so that you can compare, you can get a reference? Uh, is there a common stamp of that well, color? there are some 409s which are really close to that color, and those are the scary ones. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if there is another... Um, stamp that's just like that. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of a unique color. Yeah, you get you get four some four or nines that are really close, mm-hmm. but but it's uh, not exactly. Yeah. But a four sixty one is a four sixty one and a four sixty four two stamps that I highly recommend getting authenticated. I can't remember how many collections I've looked at where where each each of those stamps has been counterfeited. Yeah. As, as long as it, as also the same, the same goes with five nineteen the uh, USAV three forty fours that were perforated once yeah. they were returned in yeah. nineteen seventeen. And for people go back, you can do a search from whatever platform you're listening to this on, and we have done I believe two podcasts on reperforating how to detect reperfs. And so uh, when we say, you know, you detect the reperson, all of a sudden everybody throws their hands up in the air and goes, I don't know how to do that. It's like, well, listen to the podcast and all of a sudden it'll be, oh, is it that easy? And generally speaking, about half the time it is. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, is that if you're if if you get a seller collection and you have these stamps and you don't have certificates, uh, stamp dealers will almost always just um count those stamps as zero because they they assume that they're just fakes almost rightly so just real quick what are the catalog values on the two stamps uh 461 i believe is about um 80 dollars uh so that's original gun about 200 bucks 
So that's a tough one because, you know, if you're paying $25 for the certificate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a close one because you get a bad one and all of a sudden you're $25 down, your next one, it better be real. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the same kind of thing with the Perf 12 um, coils, the, the lower values. They're not that valuable in the, in the catalog, but, you know, they're just, they're so easily faked. Oh, Scott, are you joining us? Possibly. What are you talking about? We, well, we discussed dodo birds, <coughs> and now we're discussing uh, fake stamps with uh, fake perforations. You've, you've been in the Navy. You've probably seen live dodo birds. Have uh, you? You might have even eaten a, one or two. <laughs> More likely eaten one than uh, seen one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, at $75, it's kind of tough to get a certificate for $25 because again, if you submit three and two of them come back, you're the one you've got is at full catalog value. So you better be getting them for free. That's the problem with certifying the stamps that are widely counterfeited, but the certificate is, you know, a a major chunk of the cost of the stamp. I would actually argue that a stamp that catalogs $75 and but it's frequently faked is worth way more than $75 if it has a certificate. Oh, it, it is my opinion, and I've said this many times before. I think that all the coils in Scott's catalog are terribly undervalued because of the faking factor. Well, I mean, if you ask on a, uh, if you have a good relationship with the dealer, you can ask them, and, and they'll tell you straight up. They don't count Washington Franklin coils when they figure the value of a collection because there are so many fakes. Yep. Very understandable, too. I mean, they have to make money. So, Albert, what crossed your desk? Well, I had a Philippine C-63 that uh, a client walked into our office to submit. That's the uh, airmail uh, airmail stamp with the hand stamp victory overprint on it. It catalogs over $4,000. The stamp that I hate. Actually, um, that entire issue I hate. The, but one of the issues, having we had, we brought it up to the the um, experts meeting on Thursday, and everybody said, "Boy, we would it had it had the normal tropical the tropical stains that it had because it, all those stamps were actually attached to interleaving when they were when they were hand stamp overprinted victory. So this had perf stains. So I called the I called the owner up a couple of days later and soaked the stamp for about three hours in distilled water, and most of the staining came out. So I think he'll be really happy about that. But it did have no gum to begin with. So. Yeah, it did have no gum, but I would still recommend. I think that almost all the victories eventually. I mean, they were overprinted in the late ni- 1944. I think in I think in a hundred years those stamps that exist will be better off if the, all the gum is soaked off because all of them are infected with some kind of thing to t- turn the paper eventually brown. Well, my more than likely it's uh, microbes that have munched on the organically based gum. Yep, and they're having a good old time, and they're having a good old time and. When it turns brown like that, what you see is what's left over when they pass. But what you have to be careful of when you're soaking anything that's been hand-stamped with the overprint is you have to soak it just in water. Don't add anything else to it. You don't want to add any kind of soap or any kind of reagent to it because you could you could make that overprint 
uh, you could basically dissolve the overprint or change the characteristics of the overprint, like the overprint color, or actually wash the overprint away. That's also happened. What uh, what would your in your estimation? What would be the percentage of fake victory overprints to real? Uh, Ten percent real and ninety percent fake. Wow. Except for except for the two cent apple green stamp, which is only a couple yeah. dollar stamp. They have their those exist in sheets. Yeah. But anything that anything that Cal looks twenty five dollars or more, I'd say it's uh, one in ten is real, and maybe even one in two hundred is real. On the higher values, yeah. Well, there's uh, there are people on the web that are selling on eBay and things like that. I mean, yes, they're only selling them for twenty five or fifty dollars, but they're as a way to fill your spaces. But they're definitely adding to the number of fakes. I saw, I saw in this gentleman's collection, I saw at least twenty five stamps that were counterfeited, and I just said, you probably only pay, you probably got a great deal, but it isn't such a great deal when you found out that they were fake. Yeah. Well, the um, and just so the people are aware, uh, after World War II, they overstamped in what post office was it? Taco Bond. Yeah, and they had a little hand stamp, and they did each stamp individually. They it wasn't like a plate that they did the entire sheet, and it was a rubber stamp. It was done low tech, and one of the problems is the lower tech that something is done, the easier it is to fake. So they did it and they did a whole bunch the rubber on the t had like a little piece fall out of it so you have like a little bite mark out of the t well when people fake it they always fake the one with the bite mark out of the t because it fell apart later on so you have some of them that have the full t so you have this little bite mark and everybody faked the bite mark because they go it's got the bite mark it's got to be real. Yeah, Philip, it's like, no, I could make the victory over Britain and then just take a little exacto knife and cut the little bite mark out. Philippine specialists consider that when the T is intact, that's a type 1 overprint, and when it's, got the, when it's got the bite mark, it's considered type 2. Right. And in my opinion, and again, you know, there are some exceptions, but the RF overprint that they list in the airmail section of the uh, U.S. Scots Catalog Specialized, they only expertize it if it's used on piece or on cover because you want to see the cancel. And you have to see the, the sensor markings too. Right. Well, not only that, uh, technically they were supposed to be, the RF overprints were only supposed to be applied after the item was on the cover. And uh, while I'm, I'm sure, you know, know, knowing some Navy postal clerks, they, they probably hand-stamped sheets of these things and just sold them to the guys on the ship. Uh, but that was not the intended way they were supposed to be made. And so technically, anything that's unused with gum is going to be considered as not genuine. And it's kind of the exact same thing. You will find this victory overprint. And I invite everybody to go to the Scott's catalog and look up. the. There are There is a black victory overprint that was printed by an offset printing that, you know, is on the entire sheet it was printed. We're talking about the violet one that was the little rubber stamp. So when you see the black victory, those are just, you know, post office generated. This is the hand stamp one. Take a look at them because you will see these all over the place. You will go, oh, my goodness, there's a $1,000 stamp 
inside of this lot that somebody didn't know was there. Yeah, it's only a $1,000 stamp if you can get it by the expert. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I, but I equate it to the RF. I want to see the proper cancel. I definitely don't want to see any gum. If it's got nice mint, never hinged gum, it's 100% going to be fake, unless it's a two-center. Now, by definition, the RF overprints are really not overprints. They're control markings. And, and Scott's right. It had, they were applied after the stamps were actually were on the cover to just to give them some validation and also to give them some, lim, some uh, origin because these were all things that were sent by, the, the, by French Navy sailors who were operating out of U.S. ports. So, Scott, what crossed your desk? Uh, actually, a fair number of things. But the ones that were most interesting, um, how about a fake sea grill? And uh, What a shocker, a fake well, grill. Well, you know, the, the A and the, obviously the, the B grill doesn't get faked very often because they're actually only f- four of them out there, and, and so it's real easy to identify. But the A and the C grill... Um, are both impressed from the back, their male grills, and uh, that's sexist. It is, <laughs> but uh, um, I saw one that I had never seen before, and uh, it was just a, a a reminder that people will fake just about anything. <laughs> yep. And uh, the other thing I saw was a fake. Two cent missionary stamp on a genuine cover that didn't originate in the in Hawaii. Oh yeah, we we discussed that one prior on the <laughs> podcast. Yeah, two but, cent uh, rate from uh, Hawaii to Stockton, w- California. No, but it was actually Sacramento City to Stockton, California oh. <laughs> via Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the Hawaii components were faked. Yeah, um, but that crossed my desk today. Finally. Well, an item that crossed my desk, this is actually an email, and it was a reposting of a letter from David Kugel from Kelleher Stamp Stamp Auctions. And uh, the APS show just ended. Very, very strong market. This was written by him and uh, David Kugel, and I'm not sure when, but he was talking about the stamp market flattening out. And he expressed it that it was sort of a concern. And I wanted to just point out that stamp collecting is very seasonal. If it's flat in August, that's up because usually it's down in August. You'll see a drop in August. If it's actually flat in August, he should be seeing that as an interesting thing going on. Um, At PSE, Our biggest months are March and February. People are like at home, they're collecting their stamps, they send stuff in. February and March tend to be our busiest months. Well, you know why? It's because old stamp collectors get stamp presents for Christmas. They enjoy them for a couple months and then they send them to us. That could very well (laughs) be the case. Well, the thing is, we 
this is in July and August. If people who have been dealing with PSE about three years ago, they knew that we used to send out specials. We'd be, you know, send us your stamps now because we got nothing to do. You know, you'll get them back quickly and stuff. We haven't done a special in like two years because we've been fine. This year we're flooded. Literally, we are doing more business in our down months than we do in our up months. It is, this is, you know, purely, this is just us. It, it could be something that has nothing to do with the stamp market. All of a sudden, everybody says, you know, I want to get my Washington Franklin coils certified. And so they unanimously all started sending them in or something. I don't think that's the case. I think that it is an effect of the market. And when Mr. Kugel says that the market is flat, I think that he's bearing out that the market is up because it should be down right now. Traditionally, after the APS show, you'll see a drop of 10, 15%. It always happens. It has for the past decade. That's that's because everybody spends their money on stamps at the APS show, and nobody has money left for certification in the month after. It might be. But again, the sales at the APS show were strong. Oh, absolutely they were. So if everybody spent all their money and the market is only flat, that tells you something. Now, in my, you know... We got the one comment from the person, stop talking about economic stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to do that. But um, this is economics. This is, you know, sort of what to expect. Economics is Cash's thing. Yeah, it's my thing. (laughs) I got a piece of paper that says I'm smart in economics. And uh, so. Yeah, but that's California smart. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Um So it is an indicator of where your collection is today and where you can expect your stamp purchases to be over the next year or two. I I have said it before, I'll say it again. During recessionary times, and I do believe that even though we're not technically in a recession, we are in recessionary times, the bottom of the market drops. Well, in inflationary times, the top of the market increases. If the I, Fed keeps raising the interest rates, then we are, then they are looking ahead and seeing a recessionary market. So it is even if even if uh, no, you got it flipped though. If oh, they they lower the interest rates in recessionary markets. They raise the interest rates in inflationary markets. Anyway, when you see the Fed doing interest rate stuff. There's, you don't go to a doctor when you feel fine. When you're talking about your doctor is telling you to do something, it's because the doctor, you know, you're not normal. We're not in a normal economy right now. The doctor, the Federal Reserve, is doing stuff. They shouldn't be doing anything. We should just be coasting along nice and regular. And uh, when you see the news that, they're raising interest rates or lowering interest. You'll see a lowering of the interest rates probably when, it, it's my opinion, Joe Biden won't run for president. Oh, he, he's running. The question is, will he get elected? No, no, no. I, th- I think that he will not run. As the politics of it 
start moving closer to the election, you will see different things being done, one of which will be reducing the interest rates. When you start seeing that, you will know that we are in a stamp market that you might want to start spending more money in. So anything else with anybody? Yeah, I was uh, sitting on the can yesterday reading my lens. And I, uh, <laughs> that, that's a little TMI yeah. there, uh, And I come across a, uh, an article that talks about the CPEC stamp show in Seattle uh, being on for September. And the last I had checked on their website is that the, the CPEX was canceled. Well, there's a little bit of news on that. Uh, they're going to have a bourse, but no exhibits. Hmm. So it's technically not a PEX. It's not a philatelic exhibition anymore. It's just a bourse. Yeah, they, the, the article kind of gleefully talked about how the APS board voted unanimously to strip them of their WSP, the World Series of Philately. Well, having having actually been to CPEX a couple times in the last few years, um, it's not a vibrant show. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not a lot of foot traffic. The people that show up kind of do shop a little, but uh, I, I think some of the dealers do more in, in coins than they do in stamps. Hmm. Oh, so, so it is back so on. both a stamp and coin show. Well, I think it's just that a couple of the bigger dealers have coins, not that it's a coin and stamp show. And I think it's September 8th and 9th, I believe. Well, shout out to CPAX. Uh, it is my opinion, again, but... I think that as stamp shows dump their exhibiting, they will become profitable. I I would agree. The exhibitors suck a large amount of support out of the rest of the show. They don't they don't nearly pay their fair share, in my opinion. Well, I I agree. Exhibiting's great. The exhibits are are awesome to look through and and educate yourself with. But uh, I also think that uh, the the cost to a show, having to pay for all the judges, their accommodations, their flights, and all of that, plus the extra floor space, uh, is nowhere near covered by the fees to exhibit. Yeah, generally speaking, um, an exhibitor will pay between $25 and $35 for each frame that they have. Uh, then there is a awards banquet where you pick up your award. And generally, you know, the ticket to the awards banquet is about $45 and the meal costs about 30 to 35. So realistically, you're getting maybe a hundred bucks out of each exhibitor. And j the judges alone cost thousands because they have to fly out. I think that if they allowed local judges, but then you couldn't standardize stuff, you know, maybe fly out one judge and he watches all the other novice judges. And this is how it used to be a long, long time ago. But, you know, it, it got standard. It got competitive. Uh, but there's just no way to have an exhibit where the dealers pay it, well, the dealers foot the bill for everything, obviously. But there's, it's very, very difficult to have the dealers pay enough to offset the cost of the exhibits. Well, you don't have 
a, a stamp show without dealers and making the dealers foot the bill for the exhibitors, in my opinion, is uh, not right. Well, I mean, it's... They, I mean, they nobody's can, holding a gun to their head. They can do it or not. Well, that's what I'm saying. If, if they decide not to do it, then you don't have a show. All you have is an is a exhibition. And guess what? The, the cost of exhibiting doesn't support that. I think that what we will see is the virtual exhibits taking off. Uh, well, that people, would be nice. People still want to exhibit. If you put up a virtual exhibit, you can show it to more people. You don't have to be at the show to see it. Well, not only that, uh, those who are interested can download it and, and look at it at 10 o'clock at night when the, the show's yeah. not even open. I mean, that would be that would be great for, for people like me who go to the show and they got to do business and they, they want to maybe do a little shopping. But then... In the evening after dinner, well, you don't want to go to sleep on a full stomach, so you sit up and you look at some exhibits. I mean, that's it's a way to to improve the view uh, number of people that actually view the exhibits. Well, let's take ex- an example from Sescal, and it's unfortunate that Sescal went out of business, and they truly went out of business. They could not make enough money to have the show occur. It wasn't. Volunteers well, I mean, you're, or ca- you're talking about Southern California too, where everything is more expensive. Yeah. Well, they had a literature competition. The literature competition, which was great, it was virtual. You could mail the items all over the country to whatever judges you wanted to go through. It was an inexpensive way to do the literature. Now, imagine if they were sending. PDFs instead of actual books. I mean, now it's virtually free. And at Chicago PAX, they have the literature exhibit. They literally have a frame in in the hallway and a table, and that's it. It it is an incredibly profitable part of exhibiting. Oh, absolutely. The actual frames that sit up, uh, people don't un- realize that. The cost of those frames, even if you get them for free, and most people do, you mo- most most shows have those frames for free. Well, the but hinges, you have, you have to store them for the entire year just exactly. to use them for three or four days. And then you have to set them up and take them down. A lot of times you'll have some volunteers doing it. Like we get Boy Scouts a lot. The Boy Scouts help out a lot. But then, you know, you donate money to the Boy Scouts. So it's not absolutely free, but it is inexpensive. Those frames are very, very expensive, even though they are free. Well, that's because they're uh, custom made. Well, yeah. But so uh, it will be interesting to see how many stamp shows survive by getting rid of their exhibits. On the downside, and I remember quite a few dealers saying, oh, I don't want to show, go to a show that doesn't have, you know, the whales coming and the big-time exhibitors. Well, the hitch is, is that the big-time exhibitors... They start out as small-time fish. Well, but more than that, they don't come to the shows or they don't hang around or if they spend money... Generally, it's at like an auction or something. It's well, not from some dealer on the it's, floor. It, it's also... They spend money when a dealer calls them up and says, "Hey, I have something for you." Yeah, and they so they go to see that one dealer. They they don't. They're generally not the type that's gonna 
cruise around the entire show floor and shop. Yeah. So I don't think that the draw of having these rich exhibitors is there anymore. Um, well, especially I, I know since a, a lot of the exhibitors now are not the rich people. Well, some of them don't even show up for the show. Oh, they yeah. just send in their exhibit, and then a volunteer uh, either hand carries it or or it's sent through the mail, and then somebody else mounts it for them. It's displayed, and then it's packed up and sent back to them, either by courier or by mail. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about the uh, big hole, it's like, and I understand that you want younger people and stuff, but Sean, my son, who is 17 years old, he sent his exhibit to the Great American Stamp Show in Cleveland. It was free to put it up. They had to hire the judges and everything, and they didn't use normal judges. They used other judges because they're, you know, kids. Well, yeah, it's a youth exhibit. So, you know, they're graded on a totally different system. You're not looking for, how, you know, how many $1,000 items are in the exhibit. The yeah. answer is do, none. Do you have <laughs> the three unique items in your area? Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he does, again, railroad perfins on cover. And so, you know, you can sit there and say, well, is it complete? And it's like, no. Um, do you have the expensive stuff? He goes, no. <laughs> you know, so, so what kind of award does he get? And, of course, he gets like a Vermeer. He hasn't gotten a gold yet. I don't think he'll get a gold, but it's possible to get a gold as a youth exhibitor. Um, it's very different. And, again, his expenses for his frame and everything else was significant, but the show got zero dollars. And, um, you know, it is what it is. So, uh, like I said, as time goes by, we'll see how many shows there are for exhibitors and how many shows there are for boars. And I think that the stamp sellers are going to be far more popular than stamp exhibitors. Well, anybody else have anything? So last week, Cash, you mentioned that Carl Schaff had died. Do you want to talk about your little your little investment in your collection, or have you already talked about that? No, I didn't actually. And but we the last uh, podcast we did give a shout out, and we talked about plate number singles, and that was all dedicated to Carl Schaff. Um, I bought his U.S. number tens and elevens, and uh, the rest of it went to Kelleher to be auctioned off. He was a plate number collector, but it went beyond that. It's sort of like plate numbers and position pieces. So, you know, he had very few U.S. number 11s and 10s with plate numbers on them. But he had a lot of great position pieces. Um, at the auction, which will be sometime in October, and it's unfortunate that he li didn't live long enough to see his, his stuff getting sold. I think that would have been, you know, a real boost to him to see that you know his stuff got really good prices like he has a 15 cent banknote with a plate number on it it's the only banknote i'm sorry it's a grilled it's the only grilled banknote over i think seven cent that has a plate number on it and i remember when he first exhibited and the judge came up and said well, you only have one grilled plate number. You know, where's the rest? And you go, they don't exist. <laughs> 
So, you know, at a certain point, I, through him vicariously, I learned, you know, how, that when you exhibit, you have to educate the judges. And, uh, but he eventually got his gold. He has some really, really neat stuff. And when, when you look at the uh, auction, because he will have his own catalog, it'll be the Carl Schaff collection. And you're going to look at it and go, that's neat, that's neat. Even the common stuff is like, wow, that's cool looking, even though, you know, it's only a $20 stamp. I've never seen one like that in that position, you know, with a big old plate number and stuff. Well, the other thing is I like that Kelleher will run stuff at that has a lower uh, lot cost than than some of the other auction houses. I mean, Siegel won't even run a single lot unless it, they estimate that it'll bring at least a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars. Oh no, it's much higher than that. But the uh, it, my favorite is uh, when they sold the Bill Aminette collection. They had the cheapest cover of an auction catalog ever. It showed eight U.S. number elevens. They did at the time cataloged ten bucks each. So the cover of their auction catalog showed eighty dollars of catalog value of stamps. <laughs> now, obviously, when it actually sold, they were all plate numbers, and the plate number seven. I believe that there, it's two of them. I, there are two of them. So that was the big one. But this $80 of catalog sold for, I forget what it is. I think it was 10000 somewhere around $10,000. So when Mr. Schaff's collection goes up, you're going to see stuff like that. You know, you're going to see, wow, that's a $0.25 cent stamp that just sold for $400. And it's like, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> So when that, but again, you know, I wish he would have seen it because he was very proud of his collection. Like I said, he was an exhibitor. And uh, when you see it, you will know you see it because everything is a plate number and everything is really awesome looking. Well, he also liked uh, the AMG stamps, the American military government stamps after World War II. And uh, I w was, uh, I'm talked to him about it many years ago and he had because he had some stuff out he took a table at a local show and uh i was unaware of all of the different printings and and uh and everything that were associated with that and uh it was impressive what he had and like you said a lot of position pieces and plate numbers and things you don't see very often at all but he did want way too much money for it so well, that's, but we'll see what it brings at auction. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you look at the cover of the Seagull catalog, it's $80 catalog value. If you walked up and said, I want $1,000 for it, they said, well, that's a crazy price. And then goes to auction and goes to, for $10,000. <laughs> so yeah. it is what it is. I think you've bored Mark to sleep. Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, hopefully we didn't uh, bore you. Uh, if you listen to the end, thank you very much, and uh, happy collecting. We need your help. <laughs> Nothing on the Internet is free, including our phone and Internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. 
Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this silkcom was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! <laughs> Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.